Rachel mentioned last night that there is a total eclipse coming on the 8th of April, this spring, which just happens to be the first day of the month of Nisan. But that is not the only sign in the heavens that we should be aware of this year. Before that, on Purim is a blood moon. Not only that, but there's a blood moon on Purim next year, and there's a blood moon on Purim the following year. Three Purims in a row have a blood moon, will not happen again in the next thousand years. Followed by the total solar eclipse across the United States on April 8th, which like I said is Nissan 1. They will travel through, I think they said around 20 states named Salem and 8 or 10 named Nineveh, which is just curious. But then in the fall, you know, from the first day of Elul to Yom Kippur is the time of Teshuva or repentance. Halfway through the month of Elul, there is another blood moon. And then on Rosh Hashanah, another solar eclipse. Just something to look forward to and keep your eye out for. Now, if you'd open up your Bibles, please, for our Bible study today in Malachi chapter 3. Remember last week, Daniel finished up his four-part series on Behold, I Show You a Mystery. And we started then in Malachi and we got through a verse and a half. Yeah, sometimes that's doing good for me. But we're in the middle of verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant. Which covenant? The new covenant. Actually, the renewed covenant. In whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Last week we looked at the phrase, I send my messenger. And who is that about? Elijah ultimately, but John the Baptist at Messiah's first coming. We looked at all the scriptures where Messiah himself says that was talking about John the Baptist in case you missed it. And then we last looked at Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. So let's turn to that one. That will link what we taught last week with this week. Matthew 26, verse 28. Matthew 26, verse 28, takes place during the Passover Seder that Messiah celebrated with his disciples just hours before he was arrested and nailed to a tree. And it's as part of that Passover Seder that Messiah refers to two elements of the Passover Seder in fulfillment of an ancient Jewish prophecy that said, why do we do these things on Passover? Things like, we take a piece of unleavened bread, we break it in a half. We wrap half of it in a linen cloth and hide it away. Then after dinner, we bring it out. We break it, we eat it. Why do we do that? Why do we do things like that? And the answer was when Messiah comes, he will explain the elements of the Passover Seder. So that's what he's doing in verse 28. It says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That cup he's talking about is the third cup of the Passover Seder, called from time immemorial the cup of redemption. And when it says in verse 28, for this is my blood of the new covenant, 
We talked last time about there's two primary words that are used in the New Testament in Greek for new, and Edmund added there's a third that's used only once. But usually in the New Testament, the words will either be neos, which means brand new, or kainos, which means renewed, refreshed, made available again. And this word is which? It's kainos. It's a renewal of the covenant from Exodus chapter 19, where God promised that if you will hear me, then you will be my people, a kingdom of priests, a special nation, etc., which the New Testament uses the very same words to describe the believers and Messiah. And that's where we pick up today, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Looking at the concept, it said in Malachi 3, that Messiah will come as what? The messenger of the covenant. So we're looking at the phrase, the covenant. Which covenant? So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. To put it in context, let's start, put your finger here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Boy, that's a long context, but it is, it's the context. So keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 11, go back to 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, we start in verse 7. I'm giving you a chance to turn pages, there we go. Verse 7 says, therefore purge out the old leaven. What's leaven a picture of? Sin. What's Paul saying you should do with the sin in your life? Get rid of it. That you may be a new lump. Isn't that what you've always wanted, to be lumpy? But what that refers to is when you make the challah for Friday night, you make two loaves, but there's also a small lump that you break off and bake at the same time that nobody eats. That one is set aside special for the Lord. So this lump is that part which is set aside wholly unto God. Since you truly are eleven, for indeed Messiah our Passover. The word Passover there in Greek is Pesach, and it refers to the Lamb that is slain at Passover was sacrificed for us. How is Messiah a lamb that was sacrificed for us? What did John call him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he was nailed to the tree. What does the scripture say? Cursed is the one who is nailed to the tree. He who was without sin became sin for us. He took our sin upon him. The innocent dying in place of the guilty. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty. And he died for me. Verse 8 says, therefore, what does therefore mean? Because of what we just said, because he died for us, he is our Passover lamb. Therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast? Christmas? No, Passover. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So let us keep Passover. Now come to 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's talking about Passover. The church says, hey, Paul creates something new called communion. No, he's talking about Passover. Up until the time of Messiah, Passover was celebrated to remember just the exodus from Egypt. But the exodus from Egypt was a prophetic picture of Messiah's death. In Egypt, they sacrificed the lamb, put the blood upon the doorpost and lintel of the house. Look over at the door over here. Because I just watched a really awful teaching on YouTube. Look at the right side of the doorpost and put blood up across the lintel and down the other doorpost. What symbol does that make? 
It does not make a cross, which is what they were talking about. It makes the Hebrew letter chet, which is the letter for life. When they in faith shed the lamb and put the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost and the lintel, they were expressing their faith in God, being obedient to his commandments. And the death angel passed over. The death angel passed over and they were granted life. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, now let's start in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? It's referring to the Passover Seder is what they're calling the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or we despise the called out assembly of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For, what does for mean? Because I received from the Lord who taught Paul. The Lord did. For three years the Lord taught Paul. So the Lord, Paul says, I learned this from the Lord. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Yeshua on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. At what kind of a meal did he take bread? At the Passover Seder. Which bread was that? It was the Afikomen. That piece of unleavened bread, unleavened because it's got no sin, leaven's a picture of sin, is striped by the heat of the ovens. Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes we are healed. If you hold it up to the candle, you can see light through it because it's pierced. As Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our iniquity. This is the bread that Messiah says, this bread is my body. So he took bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, you know the blessing, Baruch Hata Adonai, everybody. Eloheinu melecha olam hamotzi lech hamina aris. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. He broke it, symbolic of his crucifixion, his death. And he said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Did he just give the disciples human flesh? No. That Afikoman teaches about his death, burial, and resurrection because it's wrapped in linen cloth, symbolic of burial, hidden away until after the meal. Then it's brought out, symbolic of resurrection. The child brings it out and gives it to Papa. Can Papa take it? Not until he what? Redeems it. He must give the child something for it. This do in remembrance of me. Remembrance is a retelling. So now... When you come to the Passover Seder in a couple months, will we just talk about the exodus from Egypt? Or will we talk about our exodus from sin? Which was, we were redeemed from our sin through the shed blood of which lamb? The lamb at Passover or Messiah's blood? The answer is Messiah was shed at Passover. He was killed at Passover. His blood was shed then. So it's Messiah's blood that redeems us and sets us free. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. The Passover Seder has four cups in it. This is the third cup, the cup after supper. It's called the cup of redemption, and it's been called that for over 3,000 years from time immemorial. Saying, what does the word saying mean? What follows is a quote. These are his very words. This cup, which cup? The third cup of the Passover Seder is the new covenant, which is that word new there, neos or kainos, kainos. Not brand new, 
Not something that's never been before, but something that is renewed, made fresh, offered again. This time, though, not with the blood of bulls and lambs, but with Messiah's own blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is essentially what you would call today a last will and testament. How many of you have one? If not, and you're over 18, talk to me afterwards. But how many times can you change that last will and testament? Many times as you want to until you die. Only at the point of death does that covenant come into effect. What brought the renewed covenant into effect when Messiah shed his blood? That's what he means by this cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So every Passover, when you drink that cup, remember the blood Messiah shed for you and for me on Calvary's tree. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Still talking about this covenant that Malachi 3.1 said Messiah is the messenger of. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 4. The key verse is 6. And we have such trust through Messiah toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul's trying to say, if you think you can save yourself, you're just misleading yourself. You're just kidding yourself. Only through salvation by faith can we be saved. We can't save ourselves. Verse 6, who also made us sufficient, talking about the apostles, as ministers of the new covenant, meaning what? What did Paul and the other apostles go around teaching? The new covenant, the gospel. Repentance through faith, out of love. What did Messiah say in John 14, 15? If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 says, What is the love of God? Answer, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Doesn't our faith make the law void? That's Romans 3.31. Paul said, what then? Does our faith make the law void? And his answer was? Mejanoito. Meaning God forbid. Ain't happening. It, is, it says on the contrary, we establish the law. Our faith establishes the law. Right. So also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Were we saved to walk in sin? Go to 1 Corinthians 15. I've heard all my life, the apostle Paul said, now that you're saved by faith, you can go and sin all you want. God loves it. That's not what Paul taught. Let's read his own words. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Awake to righteousness and what? Do not sin. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is anomia in Greek. That which is contrary to God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. Go to Jeremiah 31. Wayne, that's Old Testament, yeah? We could also turn to Hebrews 8. It says the same thing. But first, we'll go to Jeremiah 31. The promise of the new covenant is not given in what? 
the church today calls the New Testament. It's given in Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 to 34. There are two stages of the new covenant. Two parts. 31 says, Behold, the days are coming. See how days is plural? That started 2,000 years ago with Messiah's crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a brit chadashah, a renewed covenant, with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. With whom? House of Israel, with the house of Judah. What about the Gentile believers then? Romans 11, they are grafted in like wild olive trees grafted amongst the cultivated olive trees. There is no separate new covenant for the Gentile believers. They're grafted in or they're not. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, is different in these ways. Number one, at Mount Sinai, the covenant was written on tablets of stone and scrolls of animal skin. In the new covenant, the law is written on your heart. It's not external anymore. It's internal. If you're a child of God, if you love God, you're saved by faith. He said, if you love me, comma, keep my commandments. They're written on your heart. They're not external. They're internal. You want to do them not as a slave, but as a child. Who obeys the father, the slave or the child? Answer both, but for different reasons. The slave is afraid of punishment. The child obeys out of love. That's the difference. And the old covenant, the one at Mount Sinai, was sealed with the blood of animals. New covenant sealed by the blood of Messiah, which is better. The blood of bulls, goats, and lambs can't take away sin, but the blood of Messiah, that can take away sin. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now, wait a minute. It's not with Israel and Judah anymore, because when verse 33 gets fulfilled, they've been reunited into one nation. The vision of Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37, when Messiah returns, Israel and Judah are reunited, never to be split again. After those days, so this is talking about in the kingdom when Messiah returns to rule and reign, who teaches Torah from Mount Sinai. I'm sorry? When Messiah returns. Did I say it wrong? Okay. You know sometimes I get ahead of myself. What was that baby Yoda meme I saw on Facebook recently? It says, don't ask me to repeat myself. I wasn't listening either. <laughs> okay. So that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. That's not for the day we live in now. It's for the day that's coming so very soon, says the Lord. I will put my law. That word is Torah. It's the very same Torah it's always been. And write it on their hearts. That means they do it out of love because they want to. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Is that today? No, that's when we come into the kingdom. Only believers go into the kingdom. Everyone knows the Lord when he brings in the kingdom after the battle of Armageddon. All those who didn't know the Lord have perished. Remember the sheep and the goats? What happened to the goats? 
bolts and off to everlasting fire. For I will forgive their iniquity. That word iniquity means lawlessness and their sin I'll remember no more. Saved by what? Not by works. Saved by faith. Saved by faith. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. Brother Lane, while you're going, in uh, Jeremiah 31, 30, uh, 31, 31, the word new, yeah. Hadash, is that uh, similar to, uh, I know uh, Kainos is Greek, but is Hadash uh, like a renewed as well? Let me put it this way. The word for the new moon comes from the very same Hebrew word. Does God take the moon and throw it in a rock crusher every month and make a brand new one? Or is it simply shown to us again? It's made fresh again. Thank you. Yeah, so whenever that word is translated in the New Testament, it uses the word kainos, not neos. Okay. Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 8. Because finding fault with them, them is not with the commandments of God, it's with the people who failed him. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, that's kainos, renewed, refreshed, offered again, with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Somebody says, Hey, that's just quoting from Jeremiah 31. He answers, Yeah, that's just quoting from Jeremiah 31. It says the very same thing. Look at verse 10 of Hebrews 8. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Isaiah 2 says Messiah will teach the Torah from Jerusalem. Micah 4 says Messiah will teach the Torah from Jerusalem. But in Ezekiel 44, let's turn to that. In Ezekiel 44, God tells us that the Torah has not changed. Since God does not change and his word doesn't change, it shouldn't surprise us that his commandments don't change either. Ezekiel chapter 44, beginning in verse 23. Messiah returns in chapter 43, sets himself on his throne to rule throughout the Messianic kingdom here on earth, in what we call the Messianic kingdom or the millennial kingdom, and here is what they're teaching. Ezekiel 44, verse 23. Oh, wait, I got five questions out there. Let's see. Peggy and say I missed the word in the Jeremiah for renewed. It's Brit Chadashah. Chadashah. C-H-A-D-A-S-H-A-H. Chadashah. Okay, looks like everybody else gave the... Strong's words and everything else. So, Ezekiel 44, 23, and they shall teach my people. Does it say my Jews? No, it says my people. The difference between the holy and the unholy. And cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. Oh, wait a minute. I thought everything was clean these days. Apparently not. No. In Acts chapter 10, did Peter interpret the vision to say, God told me I should call no pig common or unclean, or I shall call no man common or unclean? It's no man. Hold out two hands. Who said the pig is unclean? God. Who said the Gentiles are unclean? Man. Who gets to decide clean and unclean? That's God. <coughs> Verse 24, in controversy they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. 
They shall keep my laws. That literally is my Torah. And my statutes. That's the chukim. Those are the commandments. We don't understand why. How many of you would have got up this morning and said, you know what? We need to go to the Mount of Olives and slaughter a totally red cow. Burn it with hyssop, with cedar, and blood-colored cloth. Then take those ashes and dip them in water. Then take the water and sprinkle people to make unclean people clean. How many of you got up this morning and said, hey, it sounds like a great idea? No, that's one of those things we don't understand. Why? God just said, do it. The ancients said, why does God give us commandments we don't understand? Why? The answer is, to see if you'll do them or not. How many of you got up this morning and said, I think murder's wrong? If God didn't tell us murder was wrong, we'd probably figure that one out on our own. So those, they're easy to follow. We know why. But to do something like slaughtering the red heifer, which, by the way, will happen very shortly. Of the five red heifers they just brought into Israel, one is questionable. The other four are still completely qualified. They are now of the age to be slaughtered. That's why, according to Hamas, they attacked Israel on October 7th because they were afraid that the slaughter of the red heifer was imminent. And you know what? They're not wrong. It will take place sometime between Passover and Shavuot this spring. You just watch and see. If it goes till the fall, they will become too old and disqualified. And these are the first red heifers that have been qualified since 70 common era, 70 AD. Anyway, I didn't finish verse 24. In all my appointed meetings, that's Leviticus 23, that's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, the feast of weeks, the feast of trumpets, the day of atonement, the feast of tabernacles. They will be taught, they will be kept throughout the millennial kingdom. And they shall hallow my Sabbaths. Notice he doesn't say they shall hallow their Sabbaths. God is very clear. The Sabbath is his. He set it aside in Genesis chapter 2 on the seventh day of creation. How many Jews were there in the world in Genesis chapter 2? The answer is none. There wouldn't be for a long, long time. Where does God first tell us about animals being clean or unclean? Genesis chapter 6 and 7. How many Jews are there in Genesis 6 or 7? There are none. These have nothing to do with whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. They have to do with the word of God. Let's continue. We're still looking at Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Let's go back to Malachi 3 1 and read it again so you can remember why we're talking about all this. Verse 1 begins, Behold. Behold means shut up and listen. Pay particular attention. What follows is not to be missed. It's kind of like, how many of you had a college professor that when he taught something that was going to be on the test would kick the podium or pound the podium? Yeah, I didn't have one of those either. But God's pounding the podium saying, pay attention to this. It's on the exam. I send my messenger at the first coming, that was John the Baptist. At the second coming, it's Elijah. He's one of the two witnesses. And he will prepare the way before me. How did he do that? Matthew chapter 3, he taught what? Yeah. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And baptize for the remission of sins. That was preparing the way. He taught, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
You know what happened to the Jewish chins when he said that? They all hit the floor. They knew that the blood of bulls, goats, and lambs don't take away sin. They were in atonement. Atonement means a covering over. But John said, no, no, his blood doesn't cover over. His blood takes away the sin of the world. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. How many times did Messiah teach in the temple in Jerusalem? Every time he went down. You know what? He only went down at the festivals. And when he went down at the festivals, where was all Israel? In Jerusalem to hear the word. Even the messenger of the covenant, we've been looking at that. How is he the messenger of the covenant? His blood is the one who seals the covenant. He's the one who gave the terms of the covenant. He's the one who explained the covenant to us. Keep a finger here and go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. The sermon we call the Beatitudes starts in chapter 5 and goes through chapter 7. In verse 17 he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. That word fulfill is plerosai. P-L-E-R-O-S-A-I. Plerosai. The root of that is plerao. P-L-E-R-O-O. It means, as it says in Romans 15, 19, where Paul uses the same word to say, I have fully preached. So he came not to destroy, but to fulfill. That's a Hebrew idiom. To destroy is to misteach the law like the scribes and Pharisees were doing. He came to correct our understanding, to teach it fully and correctly so that we would understand that what the Pharisees and scribes were teaching was wrong. Next verse. For assuredly, that's just the Hebrew word amen, if you have a Hebrew copy of Matthew. I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Will heaven and earth pass away? Yes, at the end of the millennial kingdom. Have they passed away yet? If you're not sure, stand up and jump up and down in a minute. And you'll find that it's still here. So till heaven and earth pass away... One jot, the Hebrew letter Yod, the smallest Hebrew letter, looks like a little apostrophe in our English. Or one tittle, which is a piece of a letter that if missing would cause you to confuse, say, the letter Dalit with the letter Resh. If you study Hebrew, you'll know there's a little bit of the upper line that crosses the upright, just that little bit. If you take that away, it looks more like a Resh than a Dalit. You confuse it. Messiah says not even the smallest piece of a letter will pass from what? From the law, the Torah, till all is fulfilled. That's not the same word fulfilled. This one is genetai, G-E-N-E-T-A-I. That means until all prophecy has come to pass. This is Hebrew parallelism. When does all prophecy get fulfilled? When does it all come to pass? When heaven and earth pass away. So, so long as heaven and earth are here, not the smallest letter or piece of a letter has passed from the Torah according to the word of the Lord. Has Messiah ever lied to you? No, he never will. Verse 19, therefore, says, whoever. Does whoever mean any Jewish person? No, it means any person, whoever. Therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments. What does these refer back to but the law, the Torah? 
and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever doesn't teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Which would you rather be in the kingdom of heaven, the least or the great? Well, then it says you should be not only following God's commandments, but teaching others to do so. It's the same as Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, which says those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Okay, go to Matthew chapter 21. One of the greatest errors in theological history was when somebody put the words Old Testament and New Testament as dividers in the Bible. Psalm 40 verse 7, Messiah said, Lo, I come and the volume of the book is written of me from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It's about salvation of fallen mankind through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah Yeshua, salvation by faith. When was salvation ever by works? The answer is never, never, not ever. Galatians chapter 3. Okay, but we're in Matthew 21, starting in verse 12. It is right before Passover. What does the child do in daddy's home right before Passover? But Bedekah goes through and cleans the leaven out of the house. Do you children do that? They're not going to answer. Okay. But Messiah, as the Son of God, is going to clean the sin out of the temple. Here goes. And Yeshua went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. This is the man who loved everybody. But they are in the temple of God cheating people. You cannot bring coins with pagan images on and use them in the temple to buy sacrifices. So you must change the money. And the money changers would give you 10 cents on the dollar. And you're stuck. You have no alternative. They're cheating people in the house of God. What does Messiah say? You're the leaven. Get out of my father's house. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. See why he's calling them thieves? They're cheating people. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in Hebrew is Hoshianu. It means save us please. To the son of David, they were indignant. What does the son of David mean? Messiah. So they're calling out saying, you're the Messiah, save us please. And who's indignant? The chief priests and the scribes. And he said, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? She said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. Which means they're much smarter than you are. And well, they didn't like that a bit. Then he left them, went out of the city of, to Bethany, and he lodged there. Bethany was where Messiah almost always stayed when he came to Jerusalem. What does Bethany mean? House of the poor. Right before he rides into Jerusalem where they're crying Hoshiana as he's riding in on the donkey, he didn't stay at Bethany. It's the only time I know of in the scripture he stayed at Bethphage. What is Bethphage? What does that mean? It means the house of unripe figs. As he's riding in, he sees a fig tree that's full of leaves. Those fig trees bear fruit before they bear leaves. 
So by bearing leaves, the fig tree, which represents Israel, was claiming it is righteous. It's bearing good fruit. There was no fruit on the tree. They claimed to be ripe figs, but they were not. So God cursed the tree, and it died. People say, he killed Israel. Yeah, he sent him out into captivity 40 years later. That's why in Ezekiel chapter 37 is the vision of the valley of dry bones. Who can resurrect the dead? God can. Yeshua can. Messiah can, and he did. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 43 for one last verse on Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. We looked at Ezekiel 44, and I said Messiah returned in Ezekiel 43, but I want us to see it. It is the ultimate fulfillment of the words in Malachi 3 that he will come suddenly to his temple. So Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 1. As you turn there, think of Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. Three of the disciples saw Messiah in a vision return with two witnesses who were Moses and Elijah. And he shone like the sun. That is, he wasn't reflecting light. He was the source of the light. Keep that in mind as we start. Ezekiel 43 verse 1. It says, afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. This is not a trick question. What gate is that? It's the eastern gate. The scriptures say Messiah will enter the Temple Mount when he returns through the Eastern Gate. The Ottoman Turk leader, Solomon the Magnificent, put a Muslim graveyard in front of that gate. It's still there to today. He did it saying Messiah, being an Orthodox Jew, would never walk through a graveyard. Therefore, I can stop this prophecy from happening. In Zechariah 14, it says when Messiah sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, it cleaves in two. Half that graveyard is going north, half of it's going south. Solomon's right. Messiah's not going to walk through the graveyard. He's going to move it. He's going to go through that eastern gate. Verse 2, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel. Think of Matthew 17, the transfiguration. Came from the way of the east. What's the east of Jerusalem? The Mount of Olives. His voice was like the sound of many waters. Revelation says that's how Messiah's voice sounds. And the earth shone with his glory. Go down to verse 5. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. The inner court of what? Of the temple. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. If you read the description of the temple, the windows are unique. Normally, windows are shaped such that the light comes from the outside in. In the rebuilt temple, they're beveled such that the light shines from the inside out. That the glory of the Lord will shine all over Jerusalem. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. What's that mean? This is where Messiah will rule and reign through the Messianic kingdom and into eternity future. The place of the soles of my feet, which means ownership and possession. To show you owned land in ancient Israel, you walked it. You got the dirt literally on your sandals. When you transferred a piece of land, you signified it by giving the sandal to the buyer. The sandal that had walked the land and had the dirt on it. It says, Where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel for how long? Forever. This has not happened yet. 
when Messiah returns, comes from the eastern side, from the Mount of Olives, through the eastern gate into the temple and sits down on his throne, how long will he remain? Forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name nor their kings by their harlotry, referring to idolatry. There'll be no more idolatry. Or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. High places were the places where they worshipped idols. They will do that no more. Okay, go back to Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. We're getting pretty close to done with that verse. Yes, ma'am. Can I ask a question about that last verse that we read where it talks about no more shall they defile my name? Yeah. Referring referring to the house of Israel. Right. Um, it, it's, I, I guess I'm thinking I, it's a little confusing because I think of the house of Israel being his saved people. So his saved people are defiling his name? Not anymore. And let me explain it. By the way, two people you know, the Boons, are here today. They mentioned before service that you had talked with them. Okay. But the scripture says, Israel defiled and profaned the name of God by worshiping idols in the land and getting sent out into captivity where the nations of the world think they went out of captivity because God was not strong enough to prevent it. That's how they were defiling the name of God. Now that they're being brought into the kingdom, they are all saved by faith, as Romans eleven twenty six and 27 says, all Israel shall be saved. They will never do that again. They will never be cast out of the land again. There will never be a cause for people to say God was not able to prevent it. Does that help, Susie? Yes, indeed. Thank you. Okay, good. So back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. We know who that is. He will prepare the way before me. We know how. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, both in the first coming and in the second. Ezekiel 43 was the second coming. Even the messenger of the covenant. What is a messenger? One who delivers the word, the promises. And he did that and he sealed it with his own blood. In whom you delight. Talking about the Messiah. We will delight in the Messiah if we are believers. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts in Hebrew, Adonai Zavaot means when is this ultimately fulfilled? At the first coming or the second? At the second coming. Let's go to verse 2. But, uh uh-oh, who can endure the day of his coming? By day of his coming, do they mean a 24-hour period? No, they mean the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a thousand-year period. It goes from the rapture and the resurrection through the seven-year tribulation through the messianic kingdom and ends at the new heavens and the new earth. How can a day be a thousand years? Psalm 90 verse 4, 2 Peter 3a. The day of the Lord is a thousand years. If you look up at the wall up here, Do you see just on this side of the ark a multicolored chart? It shows from the teachings of Elijah how the six days of creation followed by the Sabbath day teach about 6,000 years from the creation until the Messianic kingdom. That chart didn't come from a Christian organization. That's from the ultra-Orthodox in Jerusalem. They understand the teaching of Elijah to be 6,000 years from creation 
until the Messianic Kingdom. And that last thousand year period is the day of the Lord as we call it. They call it what? The Atid Lavo or the Achri Tayamin. Okay, so back to verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. What's fire a picture of? Judgment. So the question in verse 2 is, when the Lord comes to judge all of eternity and all people, who can stand in his presence? Who will survive the judgment? Ah, there's lots of answers to that in Scripture. Let's start with the book of Joel. Joel in Hebrew is Yael. It means the Lord is God. You know what? He's right. The Lord is God. Joel chapter 2. Comes right after Joel chapter 1 if that helps. I didn't think it would. But Joel chapter 2 begins with the beginning of the tribulation period. Isn't it always good to begin at the beginning? Verse 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, Zion, and sound alarm in my holy mountain. That's the feast of trumpets at the end of 6,000 years. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it's at hand, meaning it's here, it's finally come. What begins the day of the Lord? The rapture and the resurrection, the sounding of the shofar, the trumpet. Verse 2 says it's a day of darkness and gloominess. How many times does the scripture say the sun will be dark and the moon won't give its light? A day of clouds and thick darkness like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. The people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Three times Israel's going to get invaded. First is the Psalm 83 war. Very early in the tribulation period. Then about three years in is the battle of Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Then at the end is the battle of, Re of Armageddon from Revelation 16 and 19. Nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. During the Messianic kingdom, there will be no war until the very end when Satan's released at the end of his thousand years of incarceration. He's able to raise an army for a second battle of Gog and Magog. Can you believe it? Keep a finger here. Let's go look. Revelation chapter 20. Blows my mind. For a thousand years, people have lived with Messiah on earth in peace, love, and harmony. There's no war. There's no hurt. Even the animals don't hurt people. Messiah's on the throne teaching peace, love, and harmony. Uh, verse 7. Revelation 20, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. That's how many people Satan's able to recruit to try and throw Messiah off the throne after a thousand years of peace, love, and harmony. Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. They surround Jerusalem. They say, aha, we've got him. He's trapped. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It's over. This one doesn't even count as a battle. 
They get there, they go, aha, victory's ours, and whoosh, they're crispy critters. Let's go back to Joel 2. Verse 3, a fire devours before them. What's fire a picture of? Judgment. Remember in the book of Revelation, first a third of the earth's trees are burned up, and then all the grass is burned up, then all the trees are burned up. Behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Verse 6, before them the people writhe in pain. That is like women in childbirth, which is a common reference to the tribulation period. All faces are drained of color. Go up to verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Was that not the question in Malachi chapter 3 verse 2? Who can endure it? They're still asking that question, but then they answer it. Verse 12. Now therefore, if you want to endure it, says the Lord, turn to me. That word turn is shuvu. It's a command, plural form. It means to repent. Turn back to me. With all your heart. Wait a minute. How about with some of your heart? With a little bit. We'll give God a, a, a bone here or there. No. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Rending the heart is circumcision of the heart. It's being saved by faith and writing the commandments of God upon it. For he is gracious and merciful. So to anger and of great kindness and he relents from doing harm. So who can endure it? Those who repent. And turn to God with their whole heart. Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. Verses 6 and 9. Ah, we're just going to read 6 on through. Verse 6 says, wail. What does wail mean? Cry, Cry bitterly. For the day of the Lord's at hand. Okay, now that's Joel chapter 2 verse 1, right? Day of the Lord's starting. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp and every man's heart will melt. Meaning what? They're going to be terrified when God starts to move. And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They'll be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They'll be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger. How many of you want to be here for this? Think that would be a nice, cool thing to... Not me, uh-uh. To lay the land desolate, and he will destroy who from it? It's righteous, right? No, he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world. The world, not Israel, the world. How many of you have heard the tribulation period is just so God can punish those bad old Jews? What does this say? I'll punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. What's another word for iniquity? Lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7 verse 23 
And I'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So who's going to survive it? The wicked? The lawless? The evil ones? No. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 34. If you were not here last night, I mentioned the fact that so many of the Old Testament prophets refer to the battle of Gog and Magog, but they also refer in great numbers to the Babylonian captivity. And here's why they talk about the Babylonian captivity so much. It is prophetic. On your paper, put on one side the Babylonian captivity and put on the other side the tribulation period. At the start of the Babylonian captivity, God told those who were righteous to go into captivity, just go. And Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they become called, and some of the others that believed God, they went right into captivity. That's a picture of the rapture, God taking out those that are saved at the start of the tribulation period. Those that remain in Jerusalem are those who refuse to be obedient to God. But about halfway through the three invasions, Babylon comes back again, and another group, God tells, to go into captivity, and they go. They didn't go the first time because they didn't listen. But now they've learned enough to listen. Think to the tribulation period. About the middle of the tribulation period, the false Messiah sets up the abomination desolation. In Matthew 24, 15, what does Messiah tell the Jews to do? To flee. Flee Jerusalem. So in the Babylonian captivity, the first group fled Jerusalem and God said. The second group fled Jerusalem and God said. In the day of the Lord, the first group gets raptured. The second group, three years plus later, go to Petra to flee when they understand Messiah told them to do that. And those that remained in the days of the Babylonian captivity that refused to go even the second time. We read last night, they hardened their hearts. And when God said, repent, they said, we will not. You're wasting your breath. Quit telling us to repent. We're not going to do it. We'll do what we want, and it's none of your business. And we read last night in Revelation 16, those that didn't flee from Jerusalem will say, to God, we curse you for these wrathful judgments being poured out. We refuse to repent. At the end, the last phase of the Babylon captivity, when Babylon comes the third time, they kill every single person that's left in Jerusalem. When Messiah returns, what happens to those in Jerusalem? Because they're not saved, they die. So there's a parallel between the Babylonian captivity and the tribulation period. And that's why it's discussed by so many of the Old Testament prophets. Because it's not just history. What does Ecclesiastes teach us? What's happened before will happen again. Okay, we're in Ezekiel chapter, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 34. At least you probably are. I probably should get there. In Isaiah 34, let's start in verse 1. Titled in my Bible... Fury against the nations. And it's about the tribulation period. Come near you nations, not Israel. 
the nations of the world to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it, for the indignation of the Lord, that's the wrath of God being poured out in the tribulation period, is against all nations. Oh, I thought it was just against Israel. No, uh-uh. Against all nations. In his fury against all their armies. Who destroys the invasion of Gog and Magog? God does. Who destroys the battle of Armageddon's invading armies? God does. He has utterly destroyed them and has given them over to the slaughter. Now go down to verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion, or Zion in Hebrew. How do you remember the scripture that says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Here it is. God allowed Israel and Judah to be taken captive by the nations of the world, but did he tell the nations of the world to abuse them, to destroy them, to attack them, to slay them at every opportunity? So verse 8 says, This is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. What does brimstone do to fire? Makes it hotter. Yeah. Its land shall become burning pitch. So if you take thick tar, add sulfur to it, and set it on fire, that sounds a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't it? What did the Lord say? When you think about the rapture and the tribulation period that follows, think of Noah and Lot. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. Ooh, ooh. So who is going to survive God's judgment in that day that is coming? Will it be those that have abused the children of Israel? What did God promise back in Genesis chapter 12? It's still as true today as it was then, for God does not change. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know what the scripture says, verse 3 is? is the gospel. How does God bless all the families of the earth through Abraham? Through the Messiah. This is the promise that Messiah will come through Abraham to be the savior of all those who will put their faith in him. Now let's go to a prophet that you read every day, I'm sure. The prophet is named Nahum. I'll give you a couple extra minutes to find it. Comes right after Micah. Nahum chapter 1. And Brother Wayne, in Genesis 12, where you said that was the gospel, so that was what Hebrews mentioned, that how the gospel was preached to them in the wilderness. Yeah, and when it says the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. Yep. Thank you. Yipper. Nahum chapter 1. 
Verse 2. I don't know, may as well start in verse 1. Why start in verse 2? He who scatters, who scatters, the Lord scatters, has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily, for the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. That is, God's going to take vengeance on the nations that have abused his people. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. Why all this mention of blood color, do you suppose? In Armageddon, the blood's how deep? To the horse's bridle for 200 miles. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are open, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her, as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Who's going to stand in the day of the Lord? Those who have abused his people? Nah. All you have to do is read about Matthew 25, sheep and goat judgment, but we're not going to do that just yet. We're going to turn this dead to Psalm 24 because I like what David had to say. Because David asked the question, who can survive the day of the Lord? Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. We're going to start in verse 3. Starting in verse 3, Psalm 24. Oops, wait a minute, I have 8. Chats or questions out there? Let's see. Oh, okay. Somebody was in Nahum chapter 1 when I said chapter 2. And they said it didn't read like that. Okay. But they're square now. So Psalm 24, beginning in verse 3, says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? That means who's going to get to come in the Messianic kingdom, right? Yes. Or who may stand in his holy place? That's the temple. Who can come into the Lord's temple with Messiah on the throne? Verse 4, here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. What does scripture say about all liars? Have their place in the lake of fire. What about all idolaters? Are they on the way to heaven? No, they're not. Verse 5. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So saved by faith, walking in faith and love, being obedient to God, are going to get to come into his kingdom and worship before him. Is there any verse or scripture or chapter that more specifically addresses the non-Jews who get to come into the kingdom? Isaiah 56. 
So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 56. Last night we saw in the book of Jeremiah that God told the children of Israel in Jerusalem, if you will just keep the Sabbath, I will not destroy the temple, I will not destroy the city, and you'll always have a descendant of King David to sit on the throne. And they said, no, you're asking too much, we won't do it. Well, here in Isaiah 56, God addresses the Gentile nations. And who from the Gentile nations will get to enter into the Messianic kingdom? Starting in verse 6. Well, let's start in verse 1. Ah, why start in the middle? Verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Whose teaching is this? Did Isaiah make it up? No. He, did he get it off a bulletin board? No. Hop, hop, Facebook? No. From the Lord. Keep justice. That word keep is the verb shamar, which means to guard, to protect. Guard justice and do righteousness. For my salvation, the word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. That's the name that people in English call Jesus. If they just realized his name was Yeshua, it means salvation. The angels told his mother, you shall call his name salvation, for he shall save his people from their sins. My salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Ezekiel says Messiah's name will be called Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. It's another term for Messiah. So Gavin, here's another example of Hebrew parallelism. My salvation and my righteousness, that's Hebrew parallelism, two ways to describe the same thing. Verse 2, blessed is the man who does this. That word man is Enosh, E-N-O-S-H. It's a reference to Jewish people. Blessed is the man who does this. And the son of man, that man is Adam, A-D-A-M, Adam. So Enosh refers to the Jewish people. The son of Adam refers to everybody, Jew or Gentile alike. It's as inclusive a term as you can get. Who lays hold on it? Who keeps from defiling what? The Sabbath keeps his hand from doing any evil. According to the book of Exodus, what is the sign, the oat, the mark that we worship God? That we keep the Sabbath. Amen. Do you realize that word oat, translated in Exodus 31 as sign, is also translated other places as the mark of God? In Revelation 13, it talks about the mark of the beast. Keeping the Sabbath is the mark of God. So come over to verse 6. It gets even more specific. So verses 1 and 2 are everybody who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. That word keeps is again shamar guard. So in verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner. That Hebrew word is nekar, N-E-K-A-R. Those who are not born Jewish, otherwise known as Gentiles. Pagan idol worshippers even. But they don't want to be that anymore. It says, who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. They turn away from idol worship. They turn to serve the living God. To love the name of the Lord. To be his servants. To be his servants. Why? Out of love. Messiah said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Everyone who keeps from what? From defiling the Sabbath. And holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What's a mountain in prophecy? kingdom. So my holy kingdom 
talking about the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. It will make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the temple. How many of you realize that never in history have Gentiles been allowed to come in and make sacrifices in the temple? Israel wouldn't permit it. In the kingdom, Messiah says that house will be a house of prayer for whom? Let's read. The burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. That means gathering in the Gentiles. My Bible has a published note that says, See John chapter 10. And the publishers are right. Go to John chapter 10. Messiah talked about the very same thing. He just used other words. He used the illustration of sheep and shepherds. He never does that. Yeah, he does that a lot. John chapter 10. Starting in verse 14. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. That's a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 34. And I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep, that's the Gentiles of, of Isaiah 56. I have which are not of this fold. This fold refers to Israel. Them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And there will be how many flocks? One flock. And how many shepherds? One shepherd. If one shepherd leaves one flock, how many ways can he lead them? Just one. Messiah said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. As we read throughout the scriptures, you see the people saying, yeah, but we want to go our own way. We don't want to go your way. We don't want to follow the shepherd. We don't want to be part of the sheep. Well, that puts them in the goats of Matthew 25, and you don't want to be a goat. I know we say today that means greatest of all time, but that's not what God means. Okay, let's go back to Malachi chapter 3. We're up to verse 3, I think. So we've answered the question, who can stand when he appears? Oh, but let's add one more. Keep a finger here and go to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66 is about the second coming of the Lord. Yep, Isaiah goes all the way to the end. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 14 to 17. Are we there? Isaiah 66, 14 to 17. When you see this, that this is Messiah returning for the battle of Armageddon to comfort Jerusalem and bring judgment and vengeance on his enemies. It says, your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, that's his protection and, and blessing, shall be known to his servants. What does a servant do for the master? Serves. Serves. Just like we saw in Isaiah 56. Those who want to be his servants. 
in his indignation, that Hebrew word is za'am, Z-A apostrophe A-M. That's the tribulation period's wrath being poured out. His indignation to his enemies, and there's only the two categories. Are you his servant, or are you his enemy? If you didn't read any more than verse 14, I know which one you'd want to be, right? Verse 15 says, For behold, which means shut up and listen, this is going to get bad. The Lord will come with fire. What's fire in prophecy? Judgment. With his chariots like a whirlwind. That talks about how fast it's coming and how nothing can stand before it. Today, if you go to Los Angeles, you find buildings reinforced with rebar, concrete. They can withstand an earthquake. They can withstand a tornado. Back in the days Isaiah was written, the houses were made out of sticks and straw. How did they stand up to tornadoes? Not at all. So that's the illustration. When the Lord brings his judgment through, nobody stands in his path. To render his anger with fury. The word anger in Hebrew is the same word as nose. It's the Hebrew word off. And it's a word picture. Have you watched a western and see they're trying to break a bronco, they get thrown off, and the bronco's about to stomp them in the dirt, how you see the nostrils flare, that's the word picture. To render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire, for by fire by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh. This is Revelation 19, the battle of Armageddon. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Verse 17 gets more specific. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. Those are idol worshipers. Did you take the mark of the beast to worship Satan and his emissary? That's idolatry. Eating swine's flesh. You might know what a swine is. A pig. And the abomination in the mouth. They shall be consumed together, says the Lord. If you're having a ham sandwich when the Lord returns, you are a dead puppy. Oh, I thought the Lord declared all foods clean. Unclean animals are not food. If you think in Acts chapter 10, God declared pigs clean, you need to go back and read it again. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10. I've referred to that a couple of times now. Don't let me get away with talking about it. Make me show you. Acts chapter 10. It's actually very simple. It's just not what people tend to teach. Verse 1, there's a centurion named Cornelius. Is he Jewish? No. Verse 2, he's a devout man, one who fears God. He's a God-fearer. That's a technical term. It means he keeps God's commandments, statutes, and judgments, even though he's not Jewish. Who gave alms generously to the people. That word people there refers to the Jewish people. Why would a Roman centurion give alms to poor Jewish people. His heart has changed. He prays to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he sees a vision and says, go get Peter. So he sends how many of his righteous servants to go get Peter? Three. Three. They're Gentiles, but they're keeping God's commandments. Um, sometimes the Jewish people refer to them as half proselytes because they've not converted to Judaism. They remain Gentile, but they keep God's commandments. Said how many? Three. Peter goes into a trance. He's at Joppa down by Tel Aviv. 
and he sees something like a large sheet let down from heaven. Everybody look up here. It's called a tallit. It's the only thing in the Bible. It's like a great sheep bound at the four corners. What's bound at the four corners? The zitzit that represent the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. On the tallit, there are animals that are unclean. And a voice from heaven, a bot coal says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, okay, Lord, let's have a ham sandwich. No, he doesn't. He says, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice comes from heaven again and says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. It happens how many times? Three times. Peter has no clue what it means until there's a knock at the door. And how many Gentiles are standing there? Three. Uh-oh. Go to verse 28. Then he said to them, Peter says to these men, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. Is that God's law? No, that's rabbinic law. Man-made rules that say those Gentiles, they're unclean. You can't go visit them. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any what? Any man common or unclean. The pigs are unclean because God says they are. The Gentiles are not unclean just because the rabbis say they are. God gets to decide what's clean or unclean. Go down to verse 34. Peter explains further. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. No partiality that is between Jew and Gentile. But in every nation, every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness, that's Cornelius and his family, is accepted by him. So why does he have Cornelius send for Peter to preach the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah? Because keeping commandments is a great thing, but you can't earn salvation. Salvation's by faith. And the scripture says, how can they believe except they've heard? How can they hear except a preacher's been sent? So Peter comes in verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that as he was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Cornelius and his whole household get saved. They get baptized. Do they go home and have a pig roast? They do not. It has nothing to do with eating pigs. Oh, but Wayne, you forgot Romans 14. No, I didn't. Turn over to Romans 14. Hey, Wayne? Yep, go ahead. Wayne? Yep. And before we go to 14, uh, yep. in 28, when it says unlawful, is that like the Greek word for like dogma? I don't know that that's the Greek word that's used, but it's a reference to dogma. Yes. Okay, thank you. Yep, talking about the rabbinic rules. There is no God-given commandment. Remember how Messiah talked to the Samaritan at the well? And the Gentile woman up in Lebanon, he didn't say, whoa, wait a minute, you're a Gentile, I can't talk to you, did he? No, it was a man-made fence that was keeping the gospel from going to the Gentiles. Keep a finger in Romans 14, go back to Matthew 28. Sorry. If you don't like Ibex trails, you won't like my teaching. Matthew 28, Messiah himself taught in verses 18 to 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Let me see what the comments are out here on the chat. Uh -huh. Yep. 
Yep, it does, Gavin. It sure does. And Susie. So Matthew 28, 18. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, what does the word saying mean? What follows is a quote throughout of his very lips. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The word disciple there is Talmudim in Hebrew. It means students. Of all the nations, the word nations means the Gentiles. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe what? All things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Messiah commanded this. Have the disciples taken the gospel to the Gentiles? Before Acts 10, the answer is no. What kept them from carrying out Messiah's command was the rabbinic rules that say, you can't go talk to the Gentiles. They're unclean. So God had to say to Peter, I didn't call them unclean. I told you to go. So Peter goes, preaches the gospel. They get saved, baptized, and the gospel begins to spread throughout the entire world. But had it not been for the vision that God gave Peter, would the gospel have gone to the Gentiles? The answer is no. Romans 14. Romans 14 is translated poorly to make it look like God says you can eat pigs. It does not. Romans 14 verse 1 says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. People go, look, they're eating pigs. No, uh-uh. Those that are strong in faith are eating meat as well as vegetables. Those that are weak eat vegetables only. They're doing a partial fast every Monday and Thursday. Keep a finger here and turn to Luke 18. There is a rabbinic requirement to do a partial fast every Monday and Thursday. You can eat vegetables, but you can't eat meat. I grew up in northern Ohio, which is very Catholic. And in schools, we could not have meat on Fridays. We had to have fish because the Catholic Church prohibited eating meat on Fridays. They took the Monday-Thursday partial fast of the Jews and said, well, we'll move it to Friday. Luke chapter 18, Messiah tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in verse 12, the Pharisee says, let's read in verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Meaning, I thank you that I'm righteous, and they're all pigs. Like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Where did God command fasting twice a week? He didn't. This is the rabbinic requirement. They say Moses went up on Mount Sinai on Monday and came back on a Thursday. And therefore you can eat no meat on Monday or Thursday. Go back to Romans 14. That's the subject to Romans 14. That's why it goes from food to day of the week to food to day of the week and back and forth. What causes people confusion and real problems is verse 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Yeshua that there is nothing unclean of itself. Him who considers anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. Right there it says nothing is unclean of itself. Problem is the Greek word is not unclean. Unclean is akathartos. This word is koinon. 
Remember in Acts chapter 10, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. This is the word common. Common means forbidden by the rabbis. Unclean is forbidden by God. So Paul says, don't, tell, don't let the rabbis tell you what you can eat and not eat according to their requirements. Listen to what God tells you you can eat or not eat. Okay, I digress. So let's go back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 3. <clears throat> yeah, we still have a few minutes. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we're going to go look at that in a minute. He will purify the sons of Levi, talking about the priests and the Levitical choirs. And purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Refine them like a refiner's fire and a purifier of silver. Go to Zechariah chapter 13. God explains this in great detail. Zechariah is just a couple pages before Malachi. Zechariah 13. We'll read verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 starts 2,000 years ago. Verse 9 ends in our future, but very near future. Verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Messiah quotes that in Matthew 26, 31. This is about his crucifixion. And after the crucifixion, the sheep will be scattered. Yeah. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones, talking about the Jewish people that get scattered throughout the world in the Roman diaspora that began with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 Common Era or 70 AD. And in verse 8 brings us to the day of the Lord. So verse 7 says, Israel will be persecuted over the last 2,000 years. Anybody hear pogroms, holocausts, etc.? Anybody see the movie Ivanhoe? Yeah, the movie Ivanhoe is a great one about how the Jews were treated in England. Anybody here, Christopher Columbus? He was Jewish. 1492, Spain kicked out all the Jews. Santa Pinta and the Santa Maria, whatever the three ships were called, were bringing Jews out of Spain over to the Americas. He was what's called today a Marano. That is a secret Jew. Okay, anyway, verse 8. Shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die but one-third shall be left in it. Remember Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 said the tribulation period would be worse for the Jewish people than anything that's ever happened. In the Holocaust, a third of the Jewish people died. In the tribulation period, two-thirds will die. But verse 9 says, I'll bring the one-third, that is the one-third that survives because they come to faith in Messiah, through the fire. We'll refine them as silver is refined. You refine silver by putting it through the fire how many times? Seven times. How many years in the tribulation period? Seven. So those that survive the tribulation period survive because they are believers. Romans 11, 26 and 27 says, And all Israel shall be saved. Paul says they're not all Israel who call themselves Israel. 
and will test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I'll answer them. I'll say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Go to Ezekiel chapter 44. Somebody asked me before service started whether I like prophecy. If you know me, you know I love prophecy. Ezekiel 44, verses 15 and 16. Because Malachi, if you remember, is specifically aimed at the priests who are leading people away from God rather than to God. What are we called to be as believers, kings and priests? How many people out there calling themselves Christians are leading people away from God rather than to God, the false teachers? But in Ezekiel 44, look at verses 15 and 16. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok. Zadok was the high priest who stayed loyal to David when his sons rebelled. Who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me. They shall come near me to minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. So it's not all the descendants of Levi that get to be priests and Levites in the millennial temple with Messiah on the throne. Only those that descend from Zadok will get to be priests. Those who rebelled against God at the time of the rebellion against David have lost their right to be priests. They can be part of the Levitical choirs, but they can no longer bring offerings to the Lord. Hmm. Go back to Malachi chapter 3. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. This is talking about in the millennial kingdom with Messiah on the throne, there will be sacrifices and offerings. Even my Baptist commentary says, we don't know why, but it says there's going to be sacrifices in the kingdom. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 43. We read up through verse 17 already. We saw Messiah take his place on the throne and say, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where he's going to be amongst the children of Israel forever. Let's go to verse 10. Uh, we'll skip down to verse 12. We'll do the shorter version, looking at the clock. This is the law of the temple. What temple? Temple where Messiah is dwelling. He's ruling and reigning from the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. These are the measurements of the altar. What altar? That's the altar of sacrifice. Hmm. Go to verse 18. He said to me, Son of man, these, thus says the Lord God. It's actually my Lord, the Lord. These are the ordinances for the altar of the day when it's made for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. 
People say we don't need the sacrifices anymore. We have Messiah's blood. That misunderstands. The blood of the bulls and goats never took away Sid. That wasn't their point. They were a teaching pointing us to Messiah. The law's purpose was to lead us to Messiah. So with Messiah on the throne, the sacrifices begin again. Let's start in verse 19. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are the seed of Zadok, who approach to minister to me, says the Lord God. If you think elephants have a long memory, you think God has forgotten that golden calf incident? No, so the priests first have to offer a bull for themselves. You'll take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar. Verse 21, then you shall also take the bull of the sin offering, burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering. They shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. And it goes on and on, discussing various offerings. Why the offerings? Number one, because God commanded it. And number two, everyone who goes alive into the messianic kingdom are believers, but they have children. How do you teach children the cost of sin? The wages of sin is death. How do you teach the children that Messiah died for you children? You want to know a good way? You bring a lamb into the house on the 14th day of the first month and let him play with it for three days and make a pet out of it. Then Papa kills the lamb and puts the blood on the altar and he goes, Papa, how come that lamb had to die? That lamb had to die because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God allows the innocent to die in place of the guilty. This lamb did nothing wrong. But it died to teach you about Messiah. See that man over there on the throne? 2,000 years ago, they nailed him to a tree and shed his blood because you and I sinned. It's a teaching point. It always was. It always will be. But Wayne, no, Wayne, go to Romans 10.4. You forgot. No, I didn't. Let's go to Romans 10.4. Romans 10.4. Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law. See, it says so right there. Yeah, but keep reading. For Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end is not teleo. Teleo means a termination. This word is telos, which means goal or purpose. So Messiah is the goal of the law. The goal of the law. The law is to teach us about Messiah. So that we understand who he is. How much trouble did his own disciples have in understanding the fact that he had to die? They didn't understand until after he died, did they? So how do you explain it to children in the kingdom? When the Papa kills that lamb on Passover, they're going to get a real quick lesson. The wages of sin is what? Death. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 45. Ezekiel chapter 45. 
Jen Crouch had Joseph Good taken off TBN because he kept talking about the Millennial Temple. And she said there'll never be another temple because Messiah was crucified, so we don't need another temple. Well, she may think we don't, but God says we do. Who's going to win in the end? Ezekiel chapter 45, starting at verse 18. This is in the millennial kingdom. Messiah is sitting on the throne. Thus says the Lord God. It's actually my Lord, the Lord. In the first month, that's the month of Nisan. On the first day of the month, that's Nisan 1. You shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering, put it on the doorpost of the temple, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the gate post of the gate of the inner court. And so you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned unintentionally or in ignorance. Thus you shall make atonement for the temple. We could go to place after place. But I think that's sufficient to say the reason Messiah rebuilds the temple when he returns is because the sacrifices begin again. Let's go back to Malachi chapter 3 up to verse 5. Woohoo, we're making some progress now. Verse 5, and I will come near you for judgment. Oops. If you're not saved, that's a bad thing, right? I'll come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers. Oh, in the New Testament, you know what word appears for sorcerers? Pharmakia. Drug abuse. Against adulterers. Against perjurers. What's a perjurer? A liar. Against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans. And against those who turn away an alien. That is a non-Jewish person. And why did they do this? These people are getting judged because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So why are these people being judged? Because they're sinners. They're sinning. Why? Because they do not fear God. Go to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65 is also about the second coming of the Lord, as is chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20. Some people incorrectly think that there is no death in the millennial kingdom. That's not quite right. Let's read it. Isaiah 65, verse 20 says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. That is, no more children dying as infants nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. Scripture says the lives will be like the lives of a tree. Some of those trees in the Garden of Gethsemane are over 2,000 years old. They're the very trees Messiah cried and prayed under. I shouldn't tell you this, but if you go in the walkway between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Church of All Nations, there's a place where you can stick your finger through the fence and touch one of those 2,000-year-old trees. Just make sure the guards aren't looking. Ask me afterwards how I know. For the child shall die 100 years old, meaning if a person at 100 years old dies, they're still considered a child. 
But the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So the only way somebody is going to die in the millennial kingdom is if they choose to reject Messiah and live as a sinner. Otherwise, people are going to live through the millennial kingdom to see a thousand years of peace with Messiah on the throne. Go to Psalm chapter 2. I still remember the first time a congregation asked me to teach songs. My thought was, teach a songbook? Why? And then we started and said, oh, look, they're every one full of prophecy. The Psalms is a book of prophecy. Psalm 2 is about Messiah coming and establishing the kingdom. Let's just read it. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? It referred to the Gentiles trying to put Messiah to death to stop him in his first coming. But it's also about the battle of Armageddon where the nations of the world come against Jerusalem to stop Messiah from returning. Plot a vain thing means it ain't going to happen, not going to work. The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying... Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Meaning we will not allow the Lord to return and reign over us. How does God react? Is he afraid? He's terrified, right? No. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. Not with humor though. The Lord shall hold them in derision. You know what derision is? He's laughing at their plans and how stupid they are. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. That's the tribulation period. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king and my holy hill of Zion. Meaning you did everything you could do to stop it and you failed. That's the entire world trying to stop it. And they fail. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Old Testament says the Lord will have an only begotten son. Yes, here and in Proverbs 30 verse 4. It's in there twice. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. That's Ezekiel 43. Messiah taking the throne saying it's mine. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So how did the nations fare who come against Jerusalem in the battle of Armageddon? Not so good. You want to see something else in Isaiah 65. This is truly an ibex. But turn back to Isaiah 65. There's a prophecy in here that most people don't understand so they just read over it. Isaiah 65, verse 11. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for Mani. Therefore I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. That festival of Gad and Mani is the December 25th celebration that came to be called Christmas. 
Messiah was not born at the end of December. That's a pagan holiday. What does the Lord say about using pagan things to worship me? He said, don't do it. Don't do it. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 27. I know Kirk Cameron says, yeah, but the Christmas tree points up, so it's a Christian symbol. Just look at your encyclopedia. The Christmas tree predates Messiah by a long way. Revelation 2.27. One of the... Wait a minute. Let me go to Revelation 2 like you have. Verse 27 quotes from Psalm 2 that we just read. We'll start in verse 26 for context. He who overcomes... Overcomers are defined in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And keeps my works, that is my commandments, until the end, that is until the goal, until Messiah returns. To him I will give power over the nations, that is to be kings and priests, as Revelation 1, 6 and 7 tell us. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father, which means Messiah is going to share his rule and reign with all those who are overcomers. Do you want to be an overcomer? Do you know what 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 says is an overcomer? Let's go look. I know we did that last night, but not everybody was here last night. I'm not sure I remember what I said last night. No, that's not true. 1 John chapter 5. Who was the last apostle alive? John. He writes 30 years after the other apostles have died. And the fledgling churches are going off the rails. And he's trying to put them back on track. 1 John chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 tell us who is an overcomer. Begins, whoever believes that Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. The Greek means is truly born of God. Everyone who loves him who begot, that's God. Also loves him who is begotten of him, that's Messiah Yeshua. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For, that means because, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes Yeshua is the Son of God. So why does it go faith, keep commandments, faith? Why does it intertwine them? You can't keep his commandments without faith and love. And what does the scripture say? In 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How does God test your faith to know if it's real or not? What does he look at? Does he look at your words? No. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Titled in a lot of Bibles, the test of knowing him. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Oops, let me see what these comments are. Okay. They've all been answered. Verse 3 says, Now by this we know that we know him, 
What does John 17, 3 say? To know God means to have eternal life. So by this we know that we have eternal life. If we keep his commandments. He says, I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. That's not teaching commandment by works or salvation by works. That's saying that if you are saved by faith and you love God, what is the natural consequence? Is obedience. And that if you're not obedient, it's because you don't know him. If you knew him, you'd have faith and love. And obedience would follow just naturally. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. Revelation 12, verse 5, talks about that child who's to rule the nations. Revelation 12, 5, she bore a male child, that's Messiah, who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God in his throne. But that's not talking about the birth of Messiah 2,000 years ago. The woman is Israel. It's talking about Messiah being born in the hearts of the people. That is, the children of Israel getting saved during the tribulation period when Revelation fulfills Romans 11, 26 and 27. It says, and all Israel shall be saved. Talking about the one-third who've come through the fire, who've come to faith in Messiah, who believe in God, who are obedient to God. Look at Revelation 14, 12. Revelation 14, 12. It tells us who the saints are. You see the word saint all across the New Testament. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Notice it's not an or. It's not one or the other. Why does one keep the commandments of God? It's because of the faith. That's Romans 3.31. Let's turn back to Romans 3. Don't lose your place in Revelation. Uh, hopefully I said that before you close your Bibles. Go back to Romans 3.31. Written by the Apostle Paul. Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Without faith... The law means nothing. It's only through faith that you give meaning to the law. <coughs> because obedience is by love. And you guys are looking at me like, hey, we're late, we're late. I'm so sorry. I got caught up. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6.